From the most marginalized of backgrounds to the most powerful seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Tuesday, May 9th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, a preview of Frontline's documentary about Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny. As more news breaks about ethics violations and conflicts of interest, we'll look back at the origins of the justice, the activists, and the couple's rise to power. We check in with the Prairie Doc team today, and we slide down the slopes at Terry Peak. We'll also meet an Edgemont teacher who helps all her students become published authors and a publisher whose love of where the wild things are blossomed into a career in adult horror writing. That's later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. And I'm Lori Walsh. In case you didn't already know this, your library card gives you access to so much more than books. Libraries are a wealth of resources free for communities to use. Here's one example. You can now check out seeds for a variety of vegetables and herbs from the Rapid City Public Library. Garrett Bach is a librarian who planted the seeds for this idea, and he's with me now on the phone. Garrett, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Lori. It's great to be on. So the Rapid City Library has, I think, a particularly cool social media presence. So first of all, shout out to everyone there for doing that. I follow you on all the places. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> and watch all the fun that you are having at the library. It's a lot of work, but uh, you also make it fun. Tell me a little bit about the idea for the Seed Library. Where did that start? Yeah, you know, I... Uh, Seed libraries, it's not a, not a new concept, but uh, yeah, I had ended up taking a course out at the University of South Dakota that really kind of sparked the interest. Um, and so I think, you know, having a community program where we can provide seeds for those who are interested in gardening, um, but then also kind of put a focus on preserving genetic varieties and, you know, some of the different regional uh, seeds around, um, I think it just kind of all comes together to be a, a great program. Yeah, tell me how it works. Yeah, so um, we're kind of starting it off as a pilot program this year and then kind of seeing how it takes. But the way it works right now, uh, you know, we're stocked up with 32 different varieties. Um, we're focusing on vegetables, fruits, and herbs. And, uh, you know, any member of the public, you actually don't have to have a library card, can come in and uh, snag some of these seeds. And we were just basically having it at uh, 10 packets of seed per person per calendar year. So mm. Now... At the end of the year, people do, I've never understood this, so like people do collect their seeds and save them for the future years. So what can you tell me about, I mean, obviously, if people get seeds from the library, they're not returning them when they're done, but there are people who reuse their seeds. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, you know, that's been one of my main focuses. So all of the seeds, um, they're, they're either going to be heirloom, open-pollinated varieties, so folks who you know, really want to take that extra step and get into the uh, seed-saving um, aspect of gardening. Uh, you, you can grow these plants throughout the year, harvest, you know, a bunch of fruits and vegetables, and then, you know, with some of them, you can save the seeds. Um, you know, we provide some information uh, on, on our research databases as well as some of the books that we have in store on, you know, how to go about doing that. But really, uh, you should be able to take these seeds and keep using them year after year um, if, if you really want. So, yeah. Is this something you have a background in, or is it a new interest for you? You know, it's not specifically my background, um, but I did take some courses on botany and, and uh, you know, kind of the study of 
how plants have have grown with civilization over the years and how we how we kind of use that in in modern agriculture and so i think that's really what uh, sparked my interest and uh, you know i'm just a huge science nerd so that yeah. always helps <laughs> we've been talking about no mow may and pollinators and you mentioned open pollination, um, seed varieties. Tell me a little bit about the kinds of things you're hoping people might do with seeds to create a really better community. Well, yeah, I mean, it all kind of comes, uh, there's this idea that, you know, modern agriculture, you know, they pay, put a, a huge focus on hybrid varieties of seeds and, and you know, practice kind of monocropping, just the same type of seed, the same type of variety, and just because it, it grows really well. But, you know, the, the downside of that is that, you know, when you have, you know, fewer varieties of plants, uh, then you kind of hurt, you know, the biodiversity that we have. And so I think anybody who is you know, using these seeds and, and growing with them, you know, it, it's all kind of helping out. So um, the more varieties we can have out there uh, specialized, I think, you know, the better off we are. Yeah. Everything I know about gardening, I know from library books, in fact, far more than I've ever applied. I've read more about gardening than I've actually done. Everything I know about cooking, and uh, the list goes on. What else is ahead for the Rapid City Library? Summer programming has to be coming up. It must be an exciting time. Yeah, you know, we have a lot of great things. Uh, we, we just got the uh, pop-up uh, library rolling out uh, this last month, um, so we're going to be uh, you know, getting out there to some more remote locations to provide access to library services. Uh, we got a great team uh, who handle that. And, of course, we'll be taking some of the seeds along. Nice. <laughs> and then beyond that, we have our summer reading uh, program coming up and, you know, a number of other events um, that we all have listed on our, our website that anybody can, yeah. you know, just look it up and, and see what, you know, catches their interest. And I, I think most folks will be very happy. <laughs> and follow the Rapid City Public Library on Instagram. Garrett Bach, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Lori, for having me. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, if you've ever had your blood drawn at your annual checkup at the doctor's office, you likely did what's called a complete blood count. That's a routine test that does just what it says it does. It counts up the different parts of your blood. So why do that test? What can it help diagnose? Dr. Andrew Ellsworth is with me now to explain just that. He is our on-call with the Prairie Doc team member today, and he's with us on the phone. Andrew, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Lori. Tell us exactly what a complete blood count is, and are they all the same? Is, is that the designation for just one thing, or are doctors using that term differently? Yeah, that's the standard uh, blood uh, panel that we use to check your blood counts. So, we're, you know, if someone's anemic, their hemoglobin would be low. So we're checking the hemoglobin. We're checking the white blood cells um, that help fight infection. And if they're higher, you might, might uh, indicate or uh, help us show that you're fighting an infection. Um, the platelets that help form our clots that shows up on that test. Uh, as well as uh, the various kinds of white blood cells, it, it uh, shows what percent are neutrophils and um, eosinophils and uh, other what we call segmented white blood cells or non-segmented and bands, early, new uh, blood cells. And if, and if the blood cells all look kind of newer or if 
or that maybe your body's trying to replace ones or it's a nice uh, panel that's fairly standard uh, from clinic to clinic what what they test. Yeah. And this is one of those things that when you get the results on your chart, maybe before the doctor has looked at them, you really don't know unless you're pretty educated in this area. You don't know what you're looking at. So what are you looking for? Well, um, you know, one of the biggest or uh, most common things would be an anemia. Um, and so if those hemoglobins are lower, uh, which maybe if someone's been losing blood or are low on iron, um, that might show up that way. Um, and then that person might feel fatigued and tired all the time. They might feel even short of breath um, because they don't have that oxygen carrying capacity in their blood. You know, obviously you breathe in the oxygen and the air in your lungs, but then it's in your lungs is where your those red blood cells take up that oxygen to give to the rest of your body. So sometimes people are convinced something's wrong with their lungs sure. when actually they're anemic. They're low on blood. Yeah. Now, are there cancers that you're looking for? Yeah, that the nice thing is that, you know, unfortunately blood cancers can be really vague in the symptoms that they show, like fatigue and and all other common symptoms, um, night sweats or um, enlarged lymph nodes or frequent infections or weight loss or the list kind of kind of goes on and on. But um, but it but we can rule out most of those pretty easily with this uh, regular blood count panel, complete blood count. Okay. So we can at least uh, easily rule out a lot of those things. So then that brings a question to me because, you know, a colon cancer screening might be once every five years. Um, A breast cancer screening is one. I mean, are you essentially screening for cancers every year when you do? Like, I guess what I'm getting at is it's pretty important to get. Right. I don't think of of, of a blood draw as being a cancer screening. I think of a mammogram as being a cancer screening. But if you said, I'm going to go get my cancer screening and you took blood, I'd be like, hmm? <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good point. And, and actually, we don't necessarily, you know, when we're drawing blood, we may not be checking these, these blood counts. And I'm not saying you yeah. should have them regularly checked. Actually, it's recommended to just to have these checked if there's something going on, if you're okay. not feeling well or fatigued and so on. Then we might do this test. It's an easy test, but it might not be part of your regular blood panel when you're checking your cholesterol and your blood sugar right just because we found that it it may not be all that helpful checking it on everyone all the time Um, (laughs) you mean people like me who are panicky about (laughs) (laughs) but this is my family and and this is one of those where now that people have access to their medical record which is excellent and can see there's results right away almost always on the blood counts, there's something that's a little off. The percentage of lymphocytes, the percentage of neutrophils, the percentage of eosinophils, and almost all the time, that's okay. Maybe you're fighting a little cold. Maybe um, you've got allergies. Maybe you're young and and that skews what's normal. And so that can, (laughs) don't over, don't worry too much if some of those are a little off on your blood counts. Uh, if you're looking at your results, certainly you want to still end up talking to the doctor about it. But uh, if they say it's okay and it's something in the blood counts there that are a little off, it's 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 
by far probably just okay. Yeah. yeah. What if that's in your family? What if you have a family history of some of those blood cancers? Yeah, like I said, you know, pay attention to those symptoms, the fatigue, night sweats, enlarged lymph nodes, um, frequent infections, weight loss, bone pain, weakness. Now, granted, you know, those can easily be triggered by a variety of things, those yeah. symptoms, but um, getting checked out that way. And, but yeah, if it runs in the family, now it doesn't necessarily mean many of these are genetic. Uh, um, there's some that certainly can be genetic. Um, but um, sometimes it can happen for no rhyme or reason either. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why just paying attention to your body and your symptoms and, and, and bringing it up and, and talking it over with your doctor. Yeah, and probably no one's favorite patient, Dr. Ellsworth, but I'm a good journalist because oh. I ask those questions. <laughs> well, you know, at least you're coming in. Yeah, you know, I, oh, I, yeah. You know, some people aren't coming in till too, you know, waiting too long too. So that's yeah. why it's good to get get checked out. And with the show, you know, I'm no expert on on blood cancers by any means. And yeah. so it's really great having uh, Dr. Andre Gonzalez on with me here. And and the treatments they can do nowadays are just yeah. mind blowing. Yeah. Um. And the the way they can take your own white blood cells and uh, modulate change them a little bit. So that way they can help attack uh, the overgrowth of cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just amazing what they can do now. And we do show some of that on the show tonight. Yeah, wonderful. On Call with the Prairie Doc on SDPB TV and on the Prairie Doc Facebook page. This episode airs Thursday, 7 p.m. Central, 6 Mountain. Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, thank you so much. It's always a delight to hear your voice. You too. Thank you so much, Lori. Have a good day. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Even as frontline filmmaker Michael Kirk was wrapping his documentary about U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife Ginny Thomas, the news was breaking. The justice, who had been accused of bullying, lying, and sexual harassment during his confirmation hearings in the early 1990s, is now facing a flurry of accusations of ethical violations, largely involving money he has accepted from Texas billionaire Harlan Crow. Tonight's premiere of Frontline's Clarence and Ginny Thomas, Politics, Power, and the Supreme Court, lands in a public relations firestorm. I spoke with Michael Kirk, the film's director, this morning. Michael, welcome back to In the Moment. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Lori. It's always good to talk to you. Behind the scenes, there must be um, many rewrites and additions. Tell me a little bit about, as this news breaks, about new things that uh, Harlan Crow has done for the Thomas family, how that impacted your work coming up against the deadline for tonight's premiere. We were originally uh, hoping to make an hour film about a month ago. Uh, we've been working on it for five or six months and knew we had a lot of great stuff. The uh, the uh, But we were aiming for an hour, so we were really trying to cram it all in when we realized there was no way we were going to go for 90. So we were making a 90-minute film when the news broke uh, from ProPublica and then the Washington Post. That uh, that uh, uh, you know that as you said in your introduction, uh, that caused us to really dive back in again and uh, re-edit and and bring the film as close to up to date as possible. And even you know last Thursday night, uh, new reports from the Washington Post about uh, uh, Mr. Crow uh, picking up the tab for Clarence's adopted grandnephew. 
uh, uh, to to go to high school, to go to a private school away from uh, away from where Clarence and uh, Jenny live in Virginia, uh, at, to the tune of uh, plus six thousand dollars a month. Uh, so these uh, those kind of stories that get right to the heart of uh, of um, who Clarence and Ginny are, who they have become, what they represent, and what they and what they may be involved in, um, aside from what we all uh, know about, is was enough to get us to go to uh, to decide to make a two hour film, which is what is going to be broadcast tonight. So when we talk about these lavish vacations that are exotic, cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, this is such a far cry from the Clarence Thomas, who was born and raised under deeply marginalized circumstances. So let's start a little bit at his origin story. Who is he growing up? I had no idea how rich the story was uh uh, months ago when we started to make the film and uh, and uh, and somebody told me uh, you know this is the Thomas court this is not the Roberts court or the Alito court this is actually the Clarence Thomas court uh, and I was sort of bemused and and surprised started to look into it found out that that turns out to be very true uh, that a lot of the agenda and and, and the new edition of uh, justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Amy justice Coney Barrett are um, are are kind of in it with him, and they've sworn their allegiance more or less. To the extent that you do that inside a court to to Thomas. So I thought, okay, well we'll do uh, we'll do this story. And as we uh, got down inside of it, I suddenly realized the richness of the backstory of Clarence and the unbelievable impact that Ginny has on has and has had on Clarence's life. So that of course meant a great backstory history of her was also going to be necessary. And then weaving uh, uh, the, the, the uh, career trajectories of both of them uh, throughout a two-hour film uh, in the midst of breaking news also made it fascinating. So what made it fascinating about Clarence Thomas? He comes from, as you say, are the most marginal circumstances, real poverty, like no toilet in the house kind of poverty. Um, uh, speaking a, a, a dialect of the uh, of the enslaved uh, Georgia people, um, not not anything you could imagine. Uh, but in the in the 19, early 1950s and mid 1950s, Clarence Thomas was living a really horrible, marginalized uh, kind of existence. He is given uh, by his mother to his his father has left the family uh, when he was very little, and uh, his mother just can't make ends meet and. And gives Clarence and his brother to their very stern and abusive grandfather, who really, really, really uh, treats them badly. Clarence told a friend of his, who we interviewed, that it was the worst life imaginable, uh, the total unhappiness for all those years. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 from there on, to watch the climb of this uh, young man, a very energetic, uh, 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 curious mind, uh, wanting uh, more than anything to get out of uh, Pinpoint, Georgia, and, and, and get somewhere where he could find a home, security, nurturing, all the things he did not have in the first decade or more of his life. He is also tormented by his own 
community in the sense that his skin is very dark and he faces not only racism and segregation from white people, but he faces this nickname, ABC, America's Blackest Child. His skin is darker than a brown paper bag, and therefore he is on the other side in the community where he is seeking acceptance. How much does that play into his story growing up, the fact that he has no home, no acceptance, no one is supportive of him? Exactly. You, you you can well imagine. We've all been children and we all know how much it hurts to be teased by other kids. But to be to be living in the Jim Crow South, where you there are whole parts of towns you can't even go in. Uh, you're, ne- you're never supposed to meet, make eye contact with a white person. Uh, and then to have your peers, the other children and the other adults mocking you because you are uh, there is a there is a thing in the in the black world called colorism and uh, and Clarence was not only a victim of segregation, uh, not only a victim of racism from white people, but uh, but a, a victim of colorism as well. And it I think it really, really, really uh, hurt him. Uh, it, it beyond stung him. It sort of hurt him deeply. It also motivated him in lots of ways, mm-hmm. but it did mean that his connection that you might just automatically assume he would have with the black world uh, was uh, was interrupted in some fundamental way enough so that by later in his life uh, uh, especially now he is uh, he recognizes that he is uh, even more on the outside with an awful lot of black Americans uh, who feel that he has uh, kind of turned his back on Black America, with many of his decisions, especially vis-à-vis the um, the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. and soon affirmative action. So Clarence, from those early moments, has a kind of built-in uh, sense of uh, I, I belong nowhere. White people automatically don't like me, and uh, because of the color of my skin, um, many uh, of my black friends and black black families. Uh, uh, don't like me either. So he was really in an uphill struggle from the very beginning. I think the show does, um, the film does a masterful job of balancing this sort of narrative that almost writes itself like a, you know, an origin story for a Marvel villain to say now this man is out for revenge. But it also balances people saying he just thinks for himself. And that's a, a dangerous thing for some people, that a black man can think for himself and become a conservative. So I think there are all kinds of voices in this front line um, that really um, make you think about how you consider the decisions that he makes and why. I want to talk about Ginny because her upbringing is so polar opposite of his in this white enclave of uh, suburban Omaha. She loves her parents. She would never go against them. They are um, political activists, and you know she eats this for dinner every day. Tell me a little bit about her um, political origin story coming from a much different place. Yes, her parents, her uh, father's a, a wealthy real estate developer. Uh, her, her mother is a strong a- uh, activist, a political activist, very conservative uh, on the on the margins and maybe inside. We could never really confirm whether they were actual members of the John Birch Society or not, but they certainly were sympathetic. And uh, and uh, uh, Marjorie Lamp, uh, Ginny's mother, was very politically active and in 
the Phyllis Schlafly anti-ERA, as as many people who followed such a story will remember, Nebraska was the first state to repeal their uh, uh, their passage of the ERA. Uh, much of Schlafly's uh, handiwork, and 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 Schlafly provided a tremendous role model for Jenny, who as a young uh, girl was uh, along for the ride with Schlafly and her mother through all of that and all of the other Republican uh, politics leading up to Ronald Reagan's election. So she was schooled in a in a different kind of world than Clarence was. Obviously, uh, the, the color issues are, 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 are much different, but also just how Ginny knew what she knew about the world, a very black and white, uh, what the new, the new word everybody likes to use is very binary, mm-hmm. evil and good, black and white. Uh, and, uh, and, in, and in her case, with a heavy dose of religion, she then began to believe, as her mother and father apparently did, that uh, you know, Democrats were evil satanic almost uh um not every democrat but the democratic party certainly and democratic politicians uh very very uh, susceptible to conspiracy theories uh, again a black and white kind of answer to to um complicated I- issues um always present we've managed to find many pictures of her at Republican conventions, the Reagan convention, for example, in the crowd at a Nixon meeting, in the crowd meeting Richard Nixon. So she was, it was almost like uh, Clarence was being prepared to go one way and she was being prepared to hone in on on where she was with conservative politics, with uh, a sort of culture war in America, Mm -hmm. where she was going to be on what she considered to be the religious and 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 the appropriately a right side of most of the main issues of the day, Vietnam, civil rights, uh, 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 and, uh, and, and what became known at the time as women's lib, very anti-feminism, uh, extremely uh, uh, st- a strong uh, orientation in that direction, living in uh, a mostly white, a predominantly white by far uh, uh, town like Omaha, her high school did not have a single minority student, as a, as one person uh, told us, and that she was just a kind of as her high school boyfriend, who we interviewed, said she was a sponge. She could just she watched television and picked it all up: the civil rights struggles, the anti-war movement protests. She saw that all on television. It was horrifying to her to see. She she could say the left is causing all these riots in the cities and everything else. So that's who Jenny Lamp was when she came to Washington uh, in, in the middle of the Reagan era, at the beginning of the Reagan uh, revolution, and uh, and decided she was going to make her, her contribution to society by being in politics. She has a fascinating story, which I had never heard of, her participation in a controversial self-help group, which is very cult-like, or maybe even just a plain cult called Lifespring. And when you look at her texts on January 6th, it it almost, you can see the connection between a time when she was so absorbed in this, this cult-like behavior to when she is approaching the conspiracy theories of QAnon and bringing some of that same person to the room. What did you see in the connections there? I, I Yeah, I think, we, you know, I've made a film before a few years ago about conspiracies. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, featuring Alex Jones and, and many others and Donald Trump. The and, and Jenny absolutely fits the profile of a person who really does consume and believe QAnon and other and other conspiracy theories like that. It is a it is a it, it's not saying people who are into those things are stupid, dumb, you know, you know psychologically vulnerable. It, it, not necessarily what they are is people who are who are confused. Uh, they see a world they don't understand. They see and hear things happening that don't make easy sense. Uh, uh, they are they are prodded into that direction by unscrupulous journalism like uh, Fox News, and they find themselves uh, driven to a, an answer. And conspiracy theories really do provide the answer. Uh, for people who really don't understand what's going on in the world. And the answers are often simple and very, here's that word again, binary. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and I think Ginny was absolutely uh, and and is absolutely psychologically um, prone to and comfortable in uh, uh, the world of conspiracies. You can catch Clarence and Ginny Thomas, Politics, Power, and the Supreme Court tonight at 8 Central, 7 Mountain on PBS, SDPB-TV, of course, and on YouTube. It also starts streaming tonight on pbs.org slash frontline and the PBS video app that's at 6 Central, 5 Mountain. And our guest has been Michael Kirk, the filmmaker. Michael, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. Great to talk to you, Larry. Thank you. Let's take a moment for a story from the slopes. Terry Peak in the Black Hills attracts thousands of local and out-of-state skiers to the western side of South Dakota each year. Since 1938, it has been the premier ski location in the Mount Rushmore state. Safety remains an important component for the people who work there, and the members of the Terry Peak Ski Patrol are at the forefront of keeping skiers safe. For one member of the squad, his journey with the sport began in Europe. The ski patrol team is a real family here. I know places in big mountains. Uh, There is a lot of testosterone going on in that kind of team. Here, no, it's we all do our job uh, and we are all trained the same way. Uh, My name is Jacques Dupre. Uh, I have been a ski patroller here at Terry Peak. Uh, for the last 18 years. Uh, So I was born in France, obviously, uh, and I met my wife, who is from here, from South Dakota. Uh, Met her 25 years ago. Uh, We got married 22 years ago, and so I moved in the U.S. We decided to check out different places in the U.S., and uh, we ended up being here uh, for I guess multiple reasons, but uh, the location of Terry Peak closer to an airport, uh, big enough for her to do her job. She travels a lot. Obviously, we need to have this mountain as safe as possible for the public. So uh, every morning we come early uh, and we start our day before everybody else and we prepare the mountain. We make sure that all the slopes are Um, safe. If it's very busy, uh, we have different places on the mountain where we stand uh, and um, look at traffic and maybe talk to people if there is necessary to do it. Uh, I am 63 years old. 
I, um, I'm thinking about retirement, actually. It's my mountain now, you know. It's, I live in Sturgis. Uh, that's the mountain that is close to us. And um, it's, it's such a great place. Along with a love for skiing, Jacques is also into other outdoor sporting activities, including a growing passion for power gliding. Coming up after the break, we'll meet a teacher who helped all of her students become published authors and a publisher whose love of where the wild things are turned into a passion for adult horror. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. A primary class at Edgemont Elementary is entirely made up of newly published authors. The students wrote and published fiction books that now live on the bookshelves at their school library. Pam Kohler is the Edgemont, Edgemont Elementary teacher behind the writing exercise and publication, and she's with me now on the phone. Ms. Kohler, welcome. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Laurie, for having me. This was an article in the Fall River County Herald Star by Garland Wright, and someone sent it to me and said, this is a great story. I agree. So shout out <laughs> to the local newspaper. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about this project. Um, yeah, so we spent much of our third quarter on this fiction project, Um the writers of my you know, primary age classroom, we do fiction writing, and the really the thought behind it is to make it more authentic and more real in any way possible. And so we, you know, came up with that idea of like, okay, well, how come we can't publish these books that we're writing? And so just to make that, again, a more authentic purpose for, for what we're doing in our classroom. How do you walk the students from the beginning of an idea to publication? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so we have used a lot of different tools um, in our planning and from analyzing the fiction books that we have in our classroom, like, you know, what's your favorite fiction book um, for the kids to think about that? And, you know, what are the parts that are in it? You know, we've talked about, in, in other writing, we've talked about character setting, problem solution, those types of things, and then uh, really starting to analyze, like, oh, what do we know about the characters in the books that we read, and how do we know about those characters, um, and what the author is telling us or the illustrator is showing us. So we did a lot of analyzing um, before we started planning, and then with our own planning, um, the writers were able to, like, oh, what characters do I want and where should they be, what setting and um, <laughs> what kind of things in the setting are going to help them or hurt them with their problems. And so yeah. it was a lot of some of that prep work. I used to do a artist in residency where we would work on storytelling and, and fiction writing and I would always say, like, you've got to make your characters suffer a little bit. Like, there has to be <laughs> conflict. Maybe not with, like, too yeah. young of kids, but and uh, that's kind of liberating for kids. What uh, is one thing that you saw really opened them up when you sort of told them, hey, you can do this in fiction? Yeah, well, and that was one of the things through our analyzing and, and, and one of the things we found is, like, usually the first 
solution that they come up with doesn't work. And so that was one of the requirements <laughs> of their own fiction writing. Like, you have to have a problem, yes, and you have to have a solution that doesn't work and then a solution that does. And so, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to rein them in with all their ideas, too. <laughs> yeah. It just starts flowing. Like, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is a chapter book now, and so yeah. we'll work on this chapter, and then next time you can write the next chapter. <laughs> <laughs> I will come out to your class, and I will do this, uh, the the <laughs> plotting with Post-it notes and, like, big things of butcher paper, and then you just, like, go through yeah. and, and, and do, like, a whole bunch of chapters at once, and kids just eat that up. It's so much fun. <laughs> um, that sounds awesome. It is teachers like you that are uh, inviting the next generation of writers and readers. It gives us a, a faith I mean, with ChatGPT, you don't know what kind of world these kids are going to inhabit, but they will know how right. to write books. <laughs> they will know how to write books. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and they get so excited, I mean, just yeah. to share with each other. But um, it was a big day when our uh, boxes of books came in and, and we got to open open them and um, we just spent the rest of the writing time just reading to each other. Oh, <laughs> so it was nice. Great. Did you like film the like cutting up in the box and like pulling up in the books like authors? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Oh. And we tried. <laughs> Try. You know, it's sometimes those tapes is hard to open. Yeah. Like, right. On one hand filming and on the other trying to rip <laughs> it out. But yeah. <laughs> All the real life lessons, uh, including yeah. the first solution that you try. <sighs> often doesn't work in yeah. fiction and in real life. So Pam Kohler, Edgemont yeah. Elementary, come back anytime and talk to us about teaching and reading and writing. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Lori. If you are a fan of things that go bump in the night, then you and Doug Morano will most likely get along. Doug is a Bram Stoker award-winning author. He's an editor, publisher, founder, and CEO of Bad Hand Books. Bad Hand Books is a publishing company in South Dakota that specializes in horror, dark fantasy, and crime fiction. Doug stopped by the studio yesterday. I, uh, I own and operate a small publishing outfit called Bad Hand Books, and The Hideous Book of Hidden Horrors is, a, is an anthology of short fiction featuring a number of different authors, and it was originally published in June of last year. So it was our debut title for Bad Hand Books. We've since published others, but um, that's, that's the first. And I love short stories. I love, I think they're so underrated. There used to be such a vibrant magazine market where you could read short fiction. And now that's kind of moved, obviously, online, but to, in print, anthologies. What is the appeal of anthologies for you for short fiction? What I love is that it lets you sample a lot of different authors that you may not know about. There are those names that are sort of evergreen that anthologies typically have that, that are the draws, but then you get all of these authors who you may have never heard of before, and you get to see them shine and right up next to some of the quote-unquote bigger names. And so it's a great way to get to know the field. Yeah. Um, you can – I was reading one of the stories here just before you arrived, 
And it, I mean, I could spend the rest of my afternoon just thinking about it or reading it again. That's one of the things I like about short stories. But that's hard to do as a writer. What makes a good short story in the sense that it is self-contained, it is thought-provoking, you don't just flip to the next one right away, but yet you don't have 200, 300 pages to get people attached to characters and to, you know, unspool a plot and subplots. What makes a good short story? So what I like to think about when I'm evaluating a short story is, first and foremost, uh, I had a teacher who said that novels and novellas are about plot, where Mm -hmm. short stories are about situation. And so it's a difficult uh, needle to thread sometimes, but a a short story needs to cover a lot of ground in not too much space. You're exactly right. And so they don't have a lot of different events that happen, but an event that echoes and resonates with a character and changes them in some way. So it's this little slice of life that is a turning point. And that's really all it can be. You can't have uh, typically uh, a successful short story that tries to do a lot more than that. Yeah. I want to talk about horror as a genre in a minute and what it means to us now, especially in a post-pandemic world, (laughs) if you can prepare yourself for that. But being a publisher right now and this day and age here in working out of um, Southeast South Dakota, East River, South Dakota. How did you even get to that point? That is a huge uh, business success story. Thank you. Um, I've spent the last 10 years or so working in genre fiction for other publishers, and I've had some success with that. I've been able to work with a lot of authors that I grew up reading um, in my previous anthologies and was very fortunate to win the Bram Stoker Award for a superior achievement in an anthology a few years ago. And that opened up a lot of opportunity for me. Um, And eventually, um, you know, not to be too cynical about it, but you get tired of making money for other people and you want to see what you're made of. And after that amount of time, I thought, well, it's ready to, I'm ready to to make the leap there. Um, I had an email account full of authors that I know and respect. And so um, a lot of advantages going in. And so the quality of the authors that have put their faith in me has meant everything to me. Did you get a phone call for the Bram Stoker Award? Did you get an email, a letter? What was that moment like for you when you found out you were, because you're the only person in South Dakota to have won this, right? like the Oscars of Horror. So um, that year I had uh, been uh, downsized out of my job, (sighs) and it was uh, the spring of 2018. And uh, I ended up taking my family on kind of a Griswold road trip from <laughs> South Dakota to Providence, Rhode Island okay. in uh, what was the bomb cyclone of a few years ago. That uh, So there was a lot of wackiness that went along with that trip. We could spend the whole conversation on that. But um, we uh, it was at a, a nice hotel in Providence and a wonderful sort of a gala reception. Um, and it was surreal. Uh, a lot of my heroes were in the audience. And this guy, you know, from South Dakota (laughs) comes in um, with, you know, not a lot going for him in the outset. I didn't have a lot of contacts. I didn't have a lot of industry knowledge, but somehow I found myself there and surrounded by people I really respect. And it it was one of the um, craziest moments of my life when they called my name. Did this genre make you a reader? Did it make you a writer? Like what's the intersection between you as a young kid sort of discovering reading for the first time. Like, I became a reader, like, Watership Down. I was like, that was my book when I was... And I read a lot before, but that was the first stay up all night, can't live without finding out what happens next um, book in, like, middle school. What was it for you? 
So uh, the first book I really remember is Where the Wild Things Are. And um, I read that when I was very, very young, and it stuck with me. And I think it might have been my first taste of horror because at one point the the wild things say, I will eat you up, I love you so. Mm -hmm. And that really freaked me out, that collision between love and horror and all the different things it could be. I think wet my appetite, and then years later, we're going to fast forward to about the time I was 13, um, and I think everybody of my generation who's into horror has a Stephen King story, and that is what it was for me. I went to a garage sale, and I picked up Stephen King's It, and <laughs> that... Let's just jump all in. <laughs> right, right. That was It for me. We're not starting with Stand By Me. <laughs> we're going straight to It. <laughs> and uh, I didn't let my parents know that I had it. Um, yeah. my, my bedroom was in the basement, and in that summer, every once in a while, I would just come running up the stairs, and my parents would wonder what was going on with me, and I never really told them until much later really? that it was this book that was scaring the daylights out of me. Um, but at the same time, after that, for reasons I can't fully articulate. That's all I wanted. That's all I wanted in the whole world was to be someone who helped make this stuff. Yeah. Roald Dahl. Think about how graphic some of those children's books were. Yeah. Children being... Now, he would would say he would write about this, that all the violence happened off stage, whereas in the movies, you really kind of see things happening. But he had a very interesting touch with... I'm not sure he would call it horror, but children's literature, and darkness. And Marie Sendak said he made good books for bad children. So. Right. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would maybe categorize myself in, in that camp. I was a big uh, where the sidewalk ends. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's another you know, example, uh, Shel. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Shel Sievertson and then Silverstein. And uh, uh, yeah, Maurice Sendak. Um, he, he, ro- he wrote a, a wonderful um, anecdote about a kid who loved where the wild things are and asked him for a drawing and um he sent the the child a drawing and he said the child ate it and <laughs> it was maybe the highest compliment that anybody could have paid him for his work was was that he ate it that's fascinating <laughs> so spinning off of that and boy we could go off in a, a a tangent about what if your parents had said you can't read that or what if that wasn't available in the library to you we could really talk about that for a long time but this isn't a children's literature conversation this this book is for adults or you know adult level readers what's why horror what why do we need this it's popular right we're having a bit of a moment um and i think ever since uh del toro won the oscar for the shape of water a few years ago we've had a moment in culture where it is more accepted in mainstream um that said there's so there's there's that force at work in culture But then there's also this authoritarian stripe in America right now that's saying, here's what you can't read, here's what you can't say, here's what you can't do. And I'm interested in being at the intersection of that. Hmm. And especially in South Dakota, I think it's important to publish the things that uh, you're not supposed to say. It's important to publish the people that you're not supposed to feature and say, they belong everywhere. Um, and in front of my audiences. And so that's one function of it. The other function is with the pandemic and uh, mass shootings and wars happening in different parts of the world, I think there's a lot of danger in this moment. And horror fiction, whether it's a movie or whether it's a book, 
is sort of a dress rehearsal for disaster. It allows you to experience the worst case scenario in a very safe way. And if that appeals to you, um, it doesn't exactly desensitize you to it, but it asks you to reach within yourself and find what's there, what might be there if something bad happened to me. There is more to this interview. We'll post it later today online, sdpb.org slash news. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Tomorrow on In the Moment, we will dive deeper into Governor Kristi Noem's political origin stories, particularly the centrality of her father. Seth Tupper is with us for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation. We'll talk about the man the governor strives to make proud. Plus, author and NPR editor Steve Drummond is with us. We'll talk about the Truman Committee and lessons for today's Washington as they try to stamp out corruption and solve complicated problems. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.